Hello and welcome to Radio IAGP. My name is Implausibly Josh and thank you so much for listening. We've got a few questions, so let's get on into it. If you have questions that you would like to send in to Radio IAGP, you can do that at questions. Oh, what am I doing? You can do that at radioiagp at gmail.com. You can also go to bit.ly slash radioiagp, capital R, capital I-A-G-P. Let's go ahead and get into it. So our first question comes from Katya, who, who asks, what is the best farming sim without simulator in the title? Thanks, Katya. I think probably the best farming simulator would probably have to be something like a Stardew Valley, right? I, I never really got into Stardew Valley. It just didn't seem like the kind of game that I could see myself getting really invested in. And at a certain point, that game feels like you really need to be doing the right. Like there, it feels like there are right and wrong moves that you can be doing at any time. So if you're not doing the right moves for your farm, you might as well just be messing up actively, which isn't necessarily fun for me. I'd much rather have a wide array of things I can do in that type of a simulator, that type of a game that gives me a lot of options in terms of what I like to farm or in other types of simulators, like what I'd like to make, you know, that it's not always, hey, you have to do this thing or else you are not playing Optimum isn't a gameplay mechanic that I like. However, I think it's probably one of the better ones of those that I didn't bounce off of immediately. I probably played for like two or three hours compared to like maybe half an hour for other farming simulators and simulators of that kind. It also helps that Stardew Valley has a much better presentation of that stuff and has more than just the farming. It has a cute story and has cute characters. So there's a lot to bring you back in if that's something you're into. But yeah, I'd say for my money, it's probably Farming Simulator. I'm sorry, Farming Simulator. I think it's probably Stardew Valley is the best farming simulator without simulator in the title. Thank you. Moving on, we have Brian who asks, what Magic the Gathering decks are you rocking right now? Thank you, Brian. Nothing good, really. My current methodology is that I will play in one of the live drafts or auto drafts in arena, and then I will use those cards that I found. I'll try to stick to like two colors that I find interesting from that first pack that I draft from. So for instance, I got a an ominous seas, which is a blue. It's a it's a blue card, one colorless, one blue. And basically every time you draw a card, you add to a counter on ominous seas. And then once that counter reaches eight on ominous seas, you can get rid of eight counters and provide an eight eight token of something or other. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have any other abilities or anything interesting to it. But it's an eight eight that in theory can be pulled up really quickly. You have to be careful about what kind of draw cards you want to have in your deck build up that threat. For instance, uh, the card, the blue card anticipation, which I'm pretty sure is two colorless, one blue. Don't quote me on that. But that one doesn't technically draw you a card. You look at the top three cards of your library, which is different than drawing. So that doesn't add to your thing. But something like Jumpstart, which is like what? Two colorless and one blue, I think. That one lets you draw a card. Or no, Jumpstart. No, Jumpstart's the mechanic that's attached to the card I'm thinking of. But there's a blue card that has a Jumpstart that lets you draw a card. That one will ramp that up. There is a card that has its, I want to say either one colorless or two colorless green and a blue 
and you it basically is an enchantment that will let you put counters on creatures you have to make them the most powerful on the battlefield and then if they are the most powerful in the battlefield you can then draw an extra card so if you have um, a creature with power of two on the battlefield and it's the only creature or your only your opponent has uh, creatures that are at like power one let's say well then you're drawing an extra turn or drawing an extra card on your draw step which is adding that counter and then when that gives you extra turns to i'm sorry it, it cuts off extra turns it shortens how many turns you would need in order to pull out this eight eight for basically two mana and however many turns it takes you to actually draw that card which i find really cool like i just find that to be a really nice synergy so i, I drafted something like that um in a in a live environment of some sort and that was really cool so then what i do is i i, I basically arena will let you build something higher than a 40 card deck when it comes to drafts so i'll normally try and build like a, a 50 card deck from whatever i get from my draft so that way i hopefully have some extra options and i'm not in theory messing up my mana curve not the mana curve isn't the right word i don't know the right phrase but basically i'm not like missing my land drops on turns so i build this deck around 50 or 60 then on top of that i also have the threat of it seems like most other people aren't doing that and, and maybe that's bad strategy on my part or kind of scummy for me to do but that means that if we get into these situations where nobody's making moves and everyone's just waiting for their stuff to pop off if it comes to a point where their stuff doesn't pop off because i have stuff that maybe like prevents let's say in this case i'm playing blue i have stuff that can deny them summoning creatures you know so i could potentially take out whatever things that keep them from drawing or playing their good cards but at the same time i'm not necessarily playing aggressively because it's just not my style. I don't like to play aggressively until I can basically make my lethal attack or do chip damage like early on. Like if someone doesn't have a creature out on like turn two or turn three, I'm going to tap for however much damage I can and just like hit them a little bit. But then after that, once I get creatures out, I'm probably just going to be keeping mine to block more than I am being aggressive until I can get to a point where I'm like, all right, well, I have several tokens, several creatures. All of them have, you know, counters on them and all of them have mutations on them and all of them have this out or the other thing. Even with your blocks, you're not going to survive. So have fun dealing with this nonsense. So anyways, I take those decks and kind of what I've learned from playing that draft with those cards I got. So let's take, for instance, this ominous seas with that extra draw enchantment. I'll then take that saved deck and make it into an 100 card standard deck. So that way I can mess around with like the mechanics that I'm enjoying. So for instance, maybe I'm really enjoying mutate more than I am adding extra things to draw from. And I'll basically just play the AI a bunch until I kind of get a feeling for what mechanics I'm enjoying. And then after that, it's kind of just fine tuning it and to figure out like, OK, like, what do I like about this? You know, do I like drawing the big monster? If that's the case, maybe I need to kind of change how I do that, add more cards and look for more creatures that will let me draw cards when they come to the battlefield or if I tap they draw a card or something so then I can get this threat out as quickly as possible and then just put the game away or whatever. And then I think what I want to do from there is transfer those mechanics that I like into commander deck that I might eventually buy. I really want some I really want more experience with planeswalkers though before I do that because I find that I have like, I think I have maybe five total planeswalkers in arena. 
And I know there's more than that. And so it feels like that's the mechanic I have a lot less experience with because they're, what is it? They're like rares and mythic rares, I guess, is what a planeswalker is normally slotted into. So I'm seeing a lot less of them compared to, for instance, cards that have mutate on them. You know, it's so like I have a lot of experience now after two or three drafts. I know what I like about the mutate mechanic. I don't know what I like about planeswalkers and what they can do for me. I have one planeswalker, like a deck that's built around a planeswalker, and I can't even tell you what it does. What's the cool thing about it? It's just, it's what I have, so it's what I got. There was one that I think that I could make work where it's this this black mana planeswalker that what it does is for plus one, whatever that currency is that planeswalkers use, you can bring out two, 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 two elemental whatever majigs. And when they either attack or block, they make the opponent you're attacking or blocking have to discard two cards per token. So while you can't have more than one, and I'm not necessarily sure of how many cards exist, like enchantments or something that will let me double or add on to or whatever the amount of tokens I'm producing or beef them up or whatever. I still think it's really fun, especially if you have something like that with maybe there's this blue card I have that I can I can basically make my opponent discard the top four of their deck. And it's a it has that mechanic where you can play it from the graveyard as long as you exile cards from the graveyard, play the mana cost again. But that means that it's staying in play all the time. Unlike a jumpstart where you're discarding from your hand, the jumpstart card that you're using from the graveyard then goes into exile and you can't play it again. This discard card can just get completely used over and over. You fill your deck up with a bunch of like one mana, you know, creatures that are just there to take hits and then go into the graveyard. Maybe you have a bunch of creatures or other cards that have cycling. So that way they're just getting cycled to the graveyard or you have one mana spells, two mana spells, all these spells that you're using already that you would want to have in your deck already. But you're using that to just let the other person just discard a bunch of cards and hopefully they don't have an answer to having their card in the graveyard. Like it only works in certain situations, obviously, but there is something really fun about not only having a deck that will let me produce attackers and defenders at will you know these little elemental dudes they're only two two but depending on the state of the board at the time that could be really useful either as a defender or as an attacker so you have those then when they are attacking defending you're having your opponent discard a bunch of cards and then you have this other card that can be used almost infinitely from the graveyard and from your hand you know it's this thing that really works together really well and you know, you put a couple, of, I mean, you can't do this in Commander, but you put, put a couple of those in your deck on top of your Planeswalker, you're good to go. Obviously, I don't know how well these mechanics would transfer over to something com like Commander, where you could only have one of each card in your deck, but it would be something I like to play with, and something that I'm trying to do now is just figure out how I want to deck build around the strategies I want to use to win a game and then look through a bunch of cards and just figure it out, which I think has been the hardest part of being a magic, a new magic player in 2020 is that I don't know what's going on and I don't know historically what are useful or I wouldn't even say good cards, but just like I don't know what cards are out there, you know, so I don't know. I don't know what to look for in a lot of cases for like, OK, like, for instance, I know that mutates new, so I'm not going to be look past sets to figure out what has a mutate cost. 
You know what I mean? And I know that let's say I know I know that like, oh, some cards will draw will draw for you. So I know to look for that. I know to just type that into a, a thing, a, a database of some sort to then find that card. But a lot of the deck building so far has just been like, what do I even have in arena to mess around with? And let's go from there. They don't give you a ton of great cards that give you enough to let you know what what each mana type is all about. You know, you get really big monsters in green along with, you know, elves and just beasts in general. In black, it's all about life length and death touch and stuff like that. In blue, it's a lot of like disruption. White is also kind of similar. Red is just hit as hard as you can, as fast as you can, as often as you can. You know, a bunch of shocks, a bunch of just a bunch of like just dealing direct damage through mana and not necessarily setting up a creature to then do damage. So they give you a good idea of what the strategies are for each of the mana types. But from then on, it's like, all right, we'll have fun. Draw some cards from a, a pack or do a draft or any of this stuff. But that's it afterwards. Like I did a cube they were doing like some historic cube that was basically every card that Arena has in its database. And that was really fun because there was a ton of cards that I hadn't seen before. But unlike Paper Magic, you can't just go and grab those cards now. You know, if you have wild cards, you can. But there's no good organic way for you to discover those sets like you can if you're interacting with that set as it's coming out or on a semi-regular basis, be it weekly, daily, monthly, whatever. If you weren't there for those sets, it's really hard to digest the information from those sets and the cards that were good, the cards that were bad, and just the general in-between cards that can really make or break the majority of your deck, you know? Anyways, it's just been weird. I don't I don't have a deck that I've been playing, and this ended up just being rambly nonsense about magic in general, so I'm gonna call it there. From Anonymous, what's a game that you'd like to have in your collection that is too far outside of your price range? Q Anonymous? Um, I don't really think that there are any games that are outside of my price range, mostly because I want to have a collection that I play with on a semi-regular basis. So I'm not necessarily looking for anything that is new old stock or some type of pristine condition, you know? Like right now, I have every Game Boy Pokemon game. Yeah, every Game Boy Pokemon game. I have, actually, no, I think I'm missing one, but I have red, blue, yellow. I have gold, silver, crystal. I have puzzle leap. I have pinball. I have trading card game. I have Japanese versions of red, blue, yellow. I have Japanese green. I have Japanese gold, silver, crystal. So the only thing I think I'm missing is trading card game two for the Game Boy Color or Game Boy Regular. I don't remember, but that's like the only game I'm missing from that small collection. But if you know what to look for, a lot of that stuff was kind of easy for me to put together. So for instance, I thought it would be cool to have some of these Japanese games because I remember a big part of my childhood and interactions with Pokemon, early Pokemon, of being like, oh, it's different in Japan. You know, Pokemon is this different breed in Japan as wild. They have a whole different game called Green in Japan that we didn't get and stuff like that. So I thought like, oh, it'd be cool to get the game that was the the rumored game that never came here in my childhood. And obviously it was true, but but like, yeah, it's stuff like that. Like that was really interesting to me. So I was like, OK, well, maybe instead of also just getting green, I go ahead and get the Japanese versions of these games, too, because I know that there are differences no matter how small in terms of gameplay between what we got in the States and what 
Japan got originally, even just comparing outside of the weirdness of like what we got as red and blue and yellow compared to what Japan got as red and green and then blue and then yellow and how all those relate to what got localized over here in the States is also just cool to have. So cool. I can have that of a set. And some of that stuff was like really easy to get if I didn't care about quality of it, you know, like if so, for instance, I have a copy of Japanese Red. This copy of Japanese Red came in the box that it was sold in, which is incredible. You'd think that would be very expensive, but it wasn't because it was beat up, which is totally fine because that's cool to me. That's a very neat aesthetic. I don't want to have these games pristine condition. I want these games to be things that have been loved and will continue to be loved and will have been played and continue to be played. So this copy of Red is beat to crap. The plastic thing that's holding the cart in the box is like busted in weird ways. The the manual isn't in great condition, but that's perfect. You know, like that's really cool that this is a game that someone played. It had a save on it when I got it. And I think even when I opened it up, it had a, a newer battery in it, which meant that this was a game that someone played relatively recently. They probably had a battery issue at some point and replaced the battery, which is incredible. That's just a very storied game that you can kind of point to and go, this game has been cared for in some very important ways. And that's that's to me way more interesting than spending all this time and money to get a sealed copy of a game that because it's sealed and I'm not going to open the seal, I'm never going to play. And yeah, it's trivial to play these games now. You know, you can go to a ROM site and download these games you can buy or you get ROM hacks for them. Obviously, I've I've played some ROM hacks and stuff like that, and it's cool and all, but I've got a Game Boy Advance with a backlight in it, so I might as well just play these cool games on the hardware with the original hardware or as original as I can get it, regardless of if it's beaten up. Or, and I think that that has really helped me be able to find games within my price ranges, realize that I don't care about sealed copies. I want this to be something that I can pull out and play with, you know? In fact, my copy of Crystal is sitting on my desk right now and I could just play it whenever, you know? I have homemade cases for them so that I can display them, but I also just want to play these games again. And eventually I'll, I'll not want to, you know? I'll get through my my quest, excuse me, of wanting to play every Pokemon game, and then I might be burnt out, but I'll still have those games, and those will be cool, and they're still in, a, in a, a quality that I can still play them, and they're not just a set piece, you know? And also it helps to just go for cheaper stuff in a lot of cases, you know? You get games that have the battery busted already, so they're selling for less, which means that I just buy a soldering kit and teach myself how to solder the batteries on, and there, I'm, there I go. I'm good to go, which is exactly what I did for a lot of these games. Some of them were still kind of up there in price, like 30 bucks, 40 bucks for a game. But like a Japanese copy of Red was pretty easy to get. And even if it's beaten up, I don't care. It's still cool that way. So I really don't have anything expensive that I want in my collection because the price puts me off from actually wanting it. You know what I mean? Maybe if I had more disposable income, that might change. But as it stands right now with my current collection, I'm fine with it. You know, I might get a couple more games here and there, but... I think it's mostly like, oh, is this a game that I want to play? Yes or no. Is this a game that I think is going to be worth money to pay to play on as close to original hardware as I can? Yes or no. And if the answer to the first question is no, it doesn't even get to the second question. If the answer to the second question is no, then I don't really want it anymore. 
you know? I guess the better question would be like, what's my cutoff for price? Which I feel like is probably like 50 bucks for an older thing. If I really, really want it, you know? Like spending 50 bucks to get a copy of that second Pokemon trading card game game for the Game Boy, then yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It didn't get produced over here. It didn't get brought over to the States. So of course it's going to have some extra price attached onto that. But that's kind of part of the experience. If it's after, if it's anything over like 50-ish dollars, then I'm just not even interested in it because at that point, the price is detracting from the core reason I want these, which is that I want to play them. If a game is expensive, then I don't want to play it because these games don't need to be that expensive, you know? It's like, why would I want to get Earthbound for the Super Nintendo when it's expensive, when I could just play it on my Switch? Or that's one on the Switch, right? Even if it wasn't, like, I could just get a ROM, play it that way. I don't need to spend however much money on it to then have say that it's in my collection, because at that point, I've probably already played it and it doesn't matter anymore. I don't know. As you can tell, I've got some collection opinions. So let's move right on to Brian again, who asks... What makes a good mobile game in the year of 2020? Mobile games have changed so drastically the landscape. Are we stuck in the microtransaction gotcha girl game hell forever? Thanks, Brian. I think you can do gotcha games all right. I think the big thing for those is to, for me at least, I think I like the concept of the randomization better when it's sold to me as trading cards uses that type of terminology and pricing i play the dragon ball z dokkan battle i think is how you say that and pronounce it i've never actually said it out loud but basically it's just a game where you compare the numbers there's a slight puzzle element aspect to it and you get cool jpegs of dragon ball z characters and that's appealing to me because that's the of trading cards you know like oh i really like this art so i'm going to try and get that card like when I was collecting Pokemon cards and playing paper Pokemon a lot more often, I really, really, really liked getting full arts of cards that I could use. And it's kind of the same appeal there where I think that those games need to sell me more like that than I'm getting a pack of cards. None of them are useless. All of them have some form of use to them. It's just a matter of does the art look good or not? The one I have. Not to say that the art should look bad on any of them, but I find those like gold full art cards and cool looking or even the rainbow looking ones or the full arts for some of those mega evolutions like those just look cool and that's a thing that i'd like to have and if i don't get the full art i can still use a a different type of art and still have the same gameplay experience and i think that's where a lot of these games lose me is that want five star whatever they're offering because the five star whatever they're offering you is going to be the best version of that it's going to have the ones with the most numbers on it you know whereas in pokemon yeah there are cards that are rare but you could still have good cards at lower price points you know what i mean and i think that's just it is that i think that there's a lot of like garbage for garbage sake so for instance in the dragon ball z game i play you do summons which gives you like however many characters i think it's one character per summon, which is already a bad exchange rate, which sucks. It should be like a pack of cards. I should do a summon and a summon gives me a handful, especially when most of those characters that you're getting are garbage. They are just there to pump up the other cards or the other characters that you like and the way that the mechanics of feeding those characters you don't want into characters you do want works is that it's better to get doubles, but you're never getting enough currency. You're never getting enough characters 
to make that all work. At least if at least if you're me, I'm someone who doesn't like to spend a lot of money in those types of games because I can see like I can compare this to a trading card game where compare pulling the lever to get a summon as like opening up a pack of cards. But the value is worse on pulling the lever to get a summon because even then I don't have a thing that I can touch. And on top of that, you're only getting one thing. It'd be like if booster packs only had one card and it's basically going to a dollar general and getting the $5 card packs, which truly just have garbage in them. They almost never have anything good because that's just the way that their rates, like the the rate of, oh, it's not rate. What am I thinking? The probability of you getting a good card in a $5 dollar tree Pokemon pack is worse than just paying the three bucks to get a full set of cards or full set of booster cards. And it feels like this is even worse than that, where I'm like, okay, well, I have to buy buy X amount of currency and that will get me to the first tier good pulls, because if you pull more than one at once, then your odds on the whole are better and and they will boost them on top of that. On top of that, there are all these garbage ones put in there on purpose that it just never feels like the exchange is good. So I end up really not playing those games all that often. But if there was one that was more like a card game where they're going to give you a lot of chaff that you don't want, but every time you're pulling that lever, you're pushing that button, you're doing whatever, you're getting a lot of things as opposed to one thing, that would be that would be it. That'd be the game I play all the time. And it makes it doesn't even make sense like why they would limit it, because it's not like it's a paper product. It is all digital. It's just PNG files on an iPhone, you know? So it's really weird that they can't just sell you a pack of 10. Even games like WWE Supercard do that exchange rate better of like, oh, one pack is going to get you like, I don't know. I haven't played in a while. I just opened the app up like for the first time in maybe a year or two, like last night. And not only did I get a ton of cards that were way better than the ones I used to have, you're getting card packs, you're getting more than one summon that would be in a gotcha game for your one pull. And it's just a better exchange rate all around. You know, I'm more willing to spend money with WWE Supercard on a property I don't really care that much about anymore than this Dragon Ball Z thing, where they have me hook, line, and sinker. I love Dragon Ball Z. I will spend money on Dragon Ball Z, but I don't want to because I know the value proposition is really bad. Anyways, I, I feel like most most of these things can be learned from their physical counterparts. Almost every digital gotcha game can learn a thing or two from like Magic the Gathering or the Pokemon trading card game or any any trading card game. Hell, they could probably learn from sports trading cards. You know, there are so many different variations and weird card variants not just in like a trading card game sense of like this card is mechanically the same, but it looks different and it has a full art compared to a border or whatever. Like sports cards will sometimes have like jerseys, patches like built into the card and stuff like that, or the signatures of the player that's on the card, or it'll be about historic events within the sport. And there are so many other things that if you think of a gotcha game as just a press a button, get a pretty PNG. I feel like even then they're lacking compared to something like WWE trading cards that might have, you know, a really cool picture of The Rock and Steve Austin at one of the WrestleManias or whatever, you know, because I feel like that can be done in a thing like this Dragon Ball Z game. You know, you have a really cool 
art of Frieza and Goku standing off on Namek or something. And like, that's cool. That's a cool thing to have and have it have some mechanical implications for your game. But it just adds another layer of things to collect. You add that with the idea that every time you're getting these packs, you're getting these summons, you're always going to get an assured like rare or higher slot and then a bunch of other commons and uncommons. I think you've got a recipe for success in terms of how much money you're getting, because then you have the people who just want to do their login bonuses and be done with it. They're still able to have fun and get packs and stuff. But then the people who you want to shell out like a hundred bucks in terms of in-game currency so that they so that they can buy the equivalent of a booster box for your game. Those that still works, you know, and I think that's really what's missing from at least monetized mobile games. I think the other good space for mobile games is you build a game that has some type of mechanic that can be picked up and put down pretty easily. And then you have the user pay two bucks and it gets rid of all the ads, even the ones that like double or triple whatever you're doing. If it's an idle game, some idle games on phones will be like, hey, watch this ad and we'll double your stuff for however long. When you pay to get rid of those ads, it also means that that stuff is just free. So then you're just playing more often. And then once you bought one thing for like two bucks, well then, hey, here's another permanent grade also for about two months or two bucks. And so I think that that's like the better monetization structure is either you do it like trading cards where you're getting a lot of stuff for the money you're putting in or the money you're putting in is something to make it so that you play it for longer. Oh, well, you pay two bucks once and now all the ads are gone. I think that those are the way you make make and monetize games in 2020. And finally, from Claire, I know that you're really into Superman. If you were to bring Superman to weekly television like The Flash or Supergirl. How would you do it? Thank you so much, Claire. Um, I think I think that what you do for a modern Superman that is going to be on weekly television is that you do some monster of the week of some sort. But I think that each monster fleshes out your universe in some way. And I think that you have Superman be your anchor for the rest of your universe. I feel like if you've got Superman, you most likely have access to Batman from a rights perspective and other characters like the Flash and Wonder Woman all, and all these. And I think that you establish up front that while there are some core things about Superman that you want to take into this TV show, that he's from Krypton and that he has super strength and can fly and is weak to kryptonite, you do some other things that maybe aren't done in the other properties that Superman is dealt in, dealt with, whatever. You make Superman a visible minority. He doesn't just look like a square jaw white dude that looks pretty you know that looks conventionally attractive you know white dude do something different make him brown my personal dream look for superman is a kind of wavy haired mullet that he had in like the 80s or 90s but he looks like a he looks like those um like strongest man in the world competition dudes like he just looks big you know because he grew up on a farm you know like even if his body doesn't work the same way as human bodies do. I think he should look farm strong to really show that that's his roots as a character and as a person in this world. And then I think if you start with Superman as a pillar for these communities or this community, this universe of superheroes and DC people, I think you have Superman be the catalyst for them coming out as superheroes and deciding that 
I saw what you did with your gifts and thought I can do that too. I was inspired by you to do that. And I think that that's really lacking in a lot of Superman properties. And so that would be the next step, right? So your first episode is dealing with a Superman that has decided to make himself publicly known. You could go the Supergirl or Batman the Animated Series route of he sees a plane flying down and it's the daytime. Most of the stuff he does at night, but he realizes that he can't just let this plane crash. So he dips behind a corner of an alley somewhere, rips off the clothes, is in his suit, flies, catches the plane. And everyone's like, what? Who are you? And that sets the tone to show that superheroes are new. Superman is the first one like this. There have been rumors It's like, hey, if you exist, does that mean these other things we've heard about are similar or whatever? It's like, who knows? They might just be myths. They might just be people who don't also want to come out as superheroes and whatever, like I do, whatever. And from there, establish that Superman being public about his powers and about wanting to do good with them flips switches in people's heads who maybe have had these powers. Maybe Superman isn't the first person to have powers on Earth, but he is definitely the first person to have decided to make a public showing of them without hiding his face or anything. You can even explain that like, well, why don't you wear a mask? It's like, well, I look like y'all anyways. So I figured this might be a better way to show that like I'm I'm not someone to be afraid of. I'm not here to take over. When I take off the suit, I'm just a guy, you know, these powers are useful in very specific circumstances. But in my day to day, doesn't make me different than anybody else, whatever. But then I think you have him react to the way he has inspired other people. Maybe it's not a season one thing, but you introduce a Batman and I don't think they even need to be adversarial at all. You know, you could have it be something where like a Batman of this universe realizes that in the world he lives in, money is in a lot of ways power. And so he wants to use that power for good. And while he does what he can within the system, sometimes the system doesn't like to be fought from within, even if you're playing the game correctly. You know what I mean? So like be something where instead of it being this adversarial thing of like, I don't know, a lot of Batman media Batman and Superman have them like come to blows when they first interact, but I don't think that's necessary. I think we've all seen that way one too many times. You even have Superman's heroics accidentally bring about the birth of other characters. You know, historically, the Flash has gotten his powers from a bolt of lightning that then mixed with like, I don't know, chemical compounds or whatever. And those mixed, it gave him super speed, the speed force, whatever. But maybe you have it so that like the Flash gets his powers from some mishap with Superman. Not saying that whoever the Flash ends up being in this universe is a bad guy or something, but maybe he's like a lab tech somewhere. And as Superman's trying to save the day at the lab, this Flash gets caught in the crossfire and gets his powers that way. And so you can have Superman basically like, hey, I was born with these so I know what it's like to have your life be like different, whatever. Have them help like discover their powers and figure out what they want to do with them. But I think you just establish that this dude, while he isn't perfect, he does the best what he can at any given opportunity, the tools at his disposal. And because of that, he's inspired a lot of other people in this world to also use their powers for good. And in some cases for evil, right? You see someone who uses all their stuff, all these powers to then just be this good guy. Maybe it takes an ego hit or maybe you think, well, why don't you just do it for money or something? And that kind of flips a switch in your head and that makes bad guys or whatever. So there's lots of potential for clash and tension there. 
but I think no matter what, it's boring to see a Superman that is bleak. And I think that even if you even if you add emotional weight and stakes and all this stuff, I think it's so that overwhelmingly this is a guy did not grow up on our or did not grow up on his home planet, only knows of his biological parents because they were space age aliens that sent him to this planet after a catastrophe of their own and hopes that he doesn't have to lose his adopted planet the same way his home planet was destroyed, you know? And I think that that's the big thing. It's just you make him positive, make any overarching season not about hurting Superman and watching him get hurt to then rise back up, but to show that you can persevere and you don't have to shoulder that burden alone. I think one of the best things that some of these CW shows do is they add a support system in a way that makes a lot of sense. Like it would generally be pretty boring to watch The Flash just do his thing all alone. And while I don't necessarily need think you need to have a team Superman like you do with Supergirl, I think that you can have it so that he's willing to call for help. You know, let's say The Flash is now a thing after that previous idea I threw out there, right? Just go like, hey, if he just comes to him and is like, hey, I need your help for this thing. Like, he's too fast for me. I don't get it. There's something about him that doesn't right. I could just use an extra pair of hands. You know, you have a small support system of people. You don't have to have a whole team necessarily, but having the drama of like, oh, is Superman going to reveal he's Clark Kent to someone is kind of a boring drama to have. And so I think you have like a small support group. Maybe this version of Clark has a Lois Lane and she knows and she helps him out however she can or a Jimmy Olsen or something, a, a small crew of people, even though Superman is wildly strong and has super speed. I think another aspect of Superman that goes over is that he has immense kindness and that can feel like a superpower when things are really bleak. And I think that should show through in his interpersonal relationships and in the fact that he's not afraid to ask for help. He's not afraid to have people help him out. He's not upset to just go like, I can't do this. I need I need someone else, a fresh set of eyes, an extra chance, something. But the way that I'm going about about this isn't working. So I just need someone else. You know, that's how you can introduce other characters. You introduce a Batman, you introduce a Wonder Woman. What if some mythical creature starts to attack Metropolis and he's just like, I don't know what to do. And that's how you introduce a Wonder Woman. Her whole thing is just that, you know, on top of being, you know, an Amazon, she also has incredible knowledge of things that we think of as mythical. So maybe these magical mythical creatures are having a hard time or Superman's having a hard time with them because he's got a weakness to magic or whatever. But he calls on his friends to help get the job done and everyone's better off for it. And I don't think there needs to be a bunch of adversarial relationships like that. I basically don't want like the Lena Luther, Cara Danvers situation. I think you just steer clear of stuff like that or even like the Smallville thing with Clark and Lex where you know, you know that a Luthor doesn't play nice with a kryptonite so you're just waiting for that thing to blow up in everybody's face and i think you do away with stuff like that you don't introduce this thing that's like this is going to intentionally blow up in your face have fun stressing about that until it happens i think it's cheap drama that 
only works if you're familiar with the original work, but doesn't work if you're just watching it with no context for why they put all this dramatic music in and they put such a exaggeration interactions and things like that. I just don't think you need that. Anyways, that's my pitch. CW, if you're listening, we know I can make this more formal, whatever. And I think that'll do it. I think I've talked for long enough. I will see you all next time. Thanks again so much for listening. Remember, if you have any questions, please send them in to radioiagp at gmail.com or you can send them to the website bit.ly slash radioiagp capital R capital IAGP. You can follow me on Twitter if you want at implausiblyj. You could follow the implausibly average Twitter on Twitter at implausiblya. And that does it. I'm out of here. I talked for too long. I'm so sorry. This is going to be the longest episode ever. I'm so sorry. I'll see you all next time. Later. was crazy for Christmas. We used to wrap his presents in lead foil so he couldn't peek. You mean Santa wrapped them? Oh, of course, dear.